Chapter 7 The Eternity of God This day our hearts approve with gladness what our reason can never fully comprehend, even thine eternity, O ancient of days. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine Holy One? We worship thee, the Father everlasting, whose years shall have no end, and thee, the love-begotten Son, whose goings forth have been ever of old. We also acknowledge and adore thee, eternal Spirit, who before the foundation of the world didst live and love in co-equal glory with the Father and the Son, enlarge and purify the mansions of our souls, that they may be fit habitations for thy Spirit, who dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure. Amen. The concept of everlastingness runs like a lofty mountain range throughout the entire Bible and looms large in Orthodox Hebrew and Christian thought. Were we to reject the concept, it would be altogether impossible for us to think again the thoughts of prophets and apostles. So full were they of the long dreams of eternity. Because the word everlasting is sometimes used by the sacred writers to mean no more than long-lasting, as the everlasting hills, some persons have argued that the concept of unending existence was not in the minds of the writers when they used the word, but was supplied later by the theologians. This is, of course, a serious error, and as far as I can see, has no ground in serious scholarship. It has been used by certain teachers as an escape from the doctrine of eternal punishment. These reject the eternity of moral retribution, and to be consistent they are forced to weaken the whole idea of endlessness. This is not the only instance where an attempt was made to slay a truth, to keep it quiet, lest it appear as a material witness against an error. The truth is that if the Bible did not teach that God possessed endless being in the ultimate meaning of that term, we would be compelled to infer it from his other attributes. And if the Holy Scriptures had no word for absolute everlastingness, it would be necessary for us to coin one to express the concept. For it is assumed, implied and generally taken for granted everywhere throughout the inspired scriptures the idea of endlessness is to the kingdom of God what carbon is to the kingdom of nature. As carbon is present almost everywhere, as it is in an essential element in all living matter and supplies all life with energy, so the concept of everlastingness is necessary to give meaning to any Christian doctrine. Indeed, I know of no tenet of the Christian creed that could retain its significance if the idea of eternity were extracted from it. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, said Moses in the spirit. From the vanishing point to the vanishing point would be another way to say it, quite in keeping with the words as Moses used them. The mind looks backward in time till the dim past vanishes, then turns and looks into the future till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion. And God is at both points unaffected by either. Time marks the beginning of created existence, 
And because God never began to exist, it can have no application to him. Began is a time word and can have no personal meaning for the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Faber says, No age can heap its outward years on thee. Dear God, thou art thyself thine own eternity. Because God lives in an everlasting now, he has no past and no future. When time words occur in the scriptures, they refer to our time, not to his. When the four living creatures before the throne cry day and night, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. They are identifying God with the flow of creature life, with its familiar three tenses. And this is right and good, for God has sovereignly willed so to identify himself. But since God is uncreated, he is not himself affected by that succession of consecutive changes we call time. God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all our tomorrows, and he has lived all our yesterdays. An illustration offered by C.S. Lewis may help us here. He suggests that we think of a sheet of paper infinitely extended. That would be eternity. Then on that paper, draw a short line to represent time. As the line begins and ends on that infinite expanse, so time began in God and will end in him. That God appears at time's beginning is not too difficult to comprehend, but that he appears at the beginning and end of time simultaneously is not so easy to grasp, yet it is true. Time is known to us by a succession of events. It is the way we account for consecutive changes in the universe. Changes take place not all at once, but in succession, one after the other, and it is the relation of after to before that gives us our idea of time. We wait for the sun to move from east to west, or for the hour hand to move around the face of the clock. But God is not compelled so to wait. For him, everything that will happen has already happened. This is why God can say, I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. He sees the end and the beginning in one view. For infinite duration, which is eternity's self, includeth all succession, says Nicholas of Cusa, and all which seemeth to us to be in succession, existeth not posterior to thy concept, which is eternity. Thus, because thou art God Almighty, thou dwellest within the wall of paradise, and this wall is that coincidence where later is one with earlier, where the end is one with the beginning, where Alpha and Omega are the same, for now and then coincide in the circle of the wall of paradise. But, O oh my God, the absolute and eternal, it is beyond the present and the past that thou dost exist and utter speech. When he was a very old man, Moses wrote the psalm from which I have quoted earlier in this chapter. 
In it, he celebrates the eternity of God. To him, this truth is a solid theological fact, as firm and hard as that Mount Sinai with which he was so familiar. And for him, it had two practical meanings. Since God is eternal, he can be and continue forever to be the one safe home for his time-driven children. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. The second thought is less comforting. God's eternity is so long and our years on earth are so few. How shall we establish the work of our hands? How shall we escape the abrasive action of events that would wear us out and destroy us? God fills and dominates the psalm. So it is to him that Moses makes his plaintive appeal. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. May the knowledge of thy eternity not be wasted on me. We who live in this nervous age would be wise to meditate on our lives and our days long and often before the face of God and on the edge of eternity. For we are made for eternity as certainly as we are made for time, and as responsible moral beings we must deal with both. He hath set eternity in their heart, said the preacher, and I think here he sets forth both the glory and the misery of man. To be made for eternity and forced to dwell in time is for mankind a tragedy of huge proportions. All within us cries for life and permanence, and everything around us reminds us of mortality and change. Yet that God has made us of the stuff of eternity is both a glory yet to be realised and a prophecy yet to be fulfilled. I hope that it will not be found unduly repetitious if I return again to that important pillar of Christian theology, the image of God in man. The marks of the divine image have been so obscured by sin that they are not so easy to identify. But is it not reasonable to believe that one mark may be man's insatiable craving for immortality? Thou wilt not leave us in the dust. Thou madest man, he knows not why. He thinks he was not made to die, and thou hast made him. Thou art just. So reasons Tennyson, and the deepest instincts of the normal human heart agree with him. The ancient image of God whispers within every man of everlasting hope. Somewhere he will continue to exist. Still he cannot rejoice, for the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world troubles his existence, troubles his conscience, frightening him with proofs of guilt and evidences of coming death. So is he ground between the upper millstone of hope and the nether stone of fear. Just here the sweet relevancy of the Christian message appears. Jesus Christ hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So wrote the greatest Christian of them all just before he went out to meet his executioner. God's eternity and man's mortality join to persuade us that faith in Jesus Christ is not optional. For every man it must be Christ or eternal tragedy. 
Out of eternity, our Lord came into time to rescue his human brethren, whose moral folly had made them not only fools of the passing world, but slaves of sin and death as well. Brief life is here our portion, brief sorrow, short-lived care. The life that knows no ending, the tearless life, is there. There God, our King and portion, in fullness of his grace, we then shall see forever and worship face to face. Bernard of Cluny Chapter 8. God's Infinitude Our Heavenly Father, let us see thy glory, if it must be from the shelter of the cleft rock and from beneath the protection of thy covering hand. Whatever the cost to us in loss of friends or goods or length of days, let us know thee as thou art, that we may adore thee as we should. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The world is evil. The times are waxing late, and the glory of God has departed from the church as the fiery cloud once lifted from the door of the temple in the sight of Ezekiel, the prophet. The God of Abraham has withdrawn his conscious presence from us, and another God whom our fathers knew not is making himself at home among us. This God we have made, and because we have made him, we can understand him. Because we have created him, he can never surprise us, never overwhelm us, nor astonish us, nor transcend us. The God of glory sometimes revealed himself like a sun to warm and bless, indeed, but often to astonish, overwhelm and blind before he healed and bestowed permanent sight. This God of our fathers wills to be the God of our succeeding race. We have only to prepare him a habitation in love and faith and humility. We have but to want him badly enough, and he will come and manifest himself to us. Shall we allow a saintly and thoughtful man to exhort us? Hear Anselm, or better still, hear his words. Up now, slight man, flee for a little while thy occupations, hide thyself for a time from thy disturbing thoughts. Cast aside now thy burdensome cares, and put away thy toilsome business. Yield room for some little time to God and rest for a little time in him. Enter the inner chamber of thy mind. Shut out all thoughts save that of God and such as can aid thee in seeking him. Speak now, my whole heart. Speak now to God, saying, I seek thy face. Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Of all that can be thought or said about God, his infinitude is the most difficult to grasp. Even to try to conceive of it would appear to be self-contradictory. For such conceptualization requires us to undertake something which we know at the outset we can never accomplish. Yet, we must try, 
For the Holy Scriptures teach that God is infinite, and if we accept his other attributes, we must of necessity accept this one too. From the effort to understand, we must not turn back because the way is difficult, and there are no mechanical aids for the ascent. The view is better further up, and the journey is not one for the feet, but for the heart. Let us seek, therefore, such trances of thought and mountings of the mind, as God may be pleased to grant us, knowing that the Lord often pours eyesight on the blind and whispers to babes and sucklings truths never dreamed of by the wise and prudent. Now the blind must see and the deaf hear. Now we must expect to receive the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places. Infinitude, of course, means limitlessness, and it is obviously impossible for a limited mind to grasp the unlimited. In this chapter, I am compelled to think one step short of that about which I am writing, and the reader must, of necessity, think a degree under that about which he is trying to think. Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. The reason for our dilemma has been suggested before. We are trying to envision a mode of being altogether foreign to us and wholly unlike anything we've known in our familiar world of matter, space and time. Here and in all our meditations upon the qualities and content of God, writes Novatian, we pass beyond our power of fit conception, nor can human eloquence put forth a power commensurate with his greatness. At the contemplation and utterance of his majesty, all eloquence is rightly dumb, all mental effort is feeble. For God is greater than mind itself. His greatness cannot be conceived. Nay, could we conceive of his greatness, he would be less than the human mind which could form the conception. He is greater than all language, and no statement can express him. Indeed, if any statement could express him, he would be less than human speech, which could by such statement comprehend and gather up all that he is. All our thoughts about him would be less than he, and our loftiest utterances will be trivialities in comparison with him. Unfortunately, the word infinite has not always been held to its precise meaning, but has been used carelessly to mean simply much or a great deal, as when we say that an artist takes infinite pains with his picture or a teacher shows infinite patience with her class. Properly, the word can be used of no created thing and of no one but God. Hence, to argue about whether or not space is infinite is to play with words. Infinitude can belong to but one. There can be no second. When we say that God is infinite, we mean that he knows no bounds. Whatever God is and all that God is, he is without limit. And here again, we must break away from the popular meaning of words. Unlimited wealth and boundless energy are further examples of the misuse of words. Of course, no wealth is unlimited and no energy boundless unless we are speaking of the wealth and energy of God. 
Again, to say that God is infinite is to say that he is measureless. Measurement is the way created things have of accounting for themselves. It describes limitations, imperfections, and cannot apply to God. Weight describes the gravitational pull of the earth upon material bodies. Distance describes intervals between bodies in space. Length means extension in space. And there are other familiar measurements such as those for liquid, energy, sound, light, and numbers for pluralities. We also try to measure abstract qualities and speak of great or little faith, high or low intelligence, large or meagre talents. Is it not plain that all this does not and cannot apply to God? It is the way we see the works of his hands, but not the way we see him. He is above all this, outside of it, beyond it. Our concepts of measurement embrace mountains and men, atoms and stars, gravity, energy, numbers, speed, but never God. We cannot speak of measure or amount or size or weight and at the same time be speaking of God. For these tell of degrees, and there are no degrees in God. All that he is, and he is without growth or addition or development. Nothing in God is less or more or large or small. He is what he is in himself without qualifying thought or word. He is simply God. In the awful abyss of the divine being may lie attributes of which we know nothing and which can have no meaning for us, just as the attributes of mercy and grace can have no personal meaning for seraphim or cherubim. These holy beings may know of these qualities in God but be unable to feel them sympathetically for the reason that they have not sinned and do not call forth God's mercy and grace. So there may be, and I believe there surely are, other aspects of God's essential being, which he has not revealed even to his ransomed and spirit-illuminated children. These hidden facets of God's nature concern his relation to none but himself. They are like the far side of the moon, which we know is there, but which has never been explored and has no immediate meaning for men on earth. There is no reason for us to try to discover what has not been revealed. It is enough to know that God is God. Faber says, Thine own self forever filling with self-kindled flame, in thyself thou art distilling unctions, without name, without worshipping of creatures, without veiling of thy features, God always the same. But God's infinitude belongs to us and is made known to us for our everlasting profit. Yet, just what does it mean to us beyond the mere wonder of thinking about it? Much every way and more as we come to know ourselves and God better. Because God's nature is infinite, everything that flows out of it is infinite too. We poor human creatures are constantly being frustrated by limitations imposed upon us from without and within. 
The days of the years of our lives are few and swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert we cannot stay to give. Just when we appear to have attained some proficiency, we are forced to lay our instruments down. There is simply not time enough to think, to become, to perform what the constitution of our natures indicates we are capable of. How completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Eternal years lie in his heart. For him, time does not pass. It remains. And those who are in Christ share with him all the riches of limitless time and endless years. God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which he must work. Only to know this is to quiet our spirits and relax our nerves. For those out of Christ, time is a devouring beast. Before the sons of the new creation, time crouches and purrs and licks their hands. The foe of the old human race becomes the friend of the new, and the stars in their courses fight for the man God delights to honour. This we may learn from the divine infinitude. But there is more. God's gifts in nature have their limitations. They are finite because they have been created. But the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus is as limitless as God. The Christian man possesses God's own life and shares his infinitude with him. In God, there is life enough for all and time enough to enjoy it. Whatever is possessed of natural life runs through its cycle from birth to death and ceases to be. But the life of God returns upon itself and ceases never. And this is life eternal, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. The mercy of God is infinite too. And the man who has felt the grinding pain of inward guilt knows that this is more than academic. Where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. Abounding sin is the terror of the world, but abounding grace is the hope of mankind. However sin may abound, it still has its limits, for it's the product of finite minds and hearts. But God's much more introduces us to infinitude. Against our deep creature sickness stands God's infinite ability to cure. The Christian witness through the centuries has been that God so loved the world. It remains for us to see that love in the light of God's infinitude. His love is measureless. It is more. It is boundless. It has no bounds. Because it is not a thing, but a facet of the essential nature of God. His love is something he is. And because he is infinite, that love can enfold the whole created world in itself and have room for 10,000 times 10,000 worlds beside. Joseph Hart says, This, this is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend, whose love is as great as his power, and neither knows measure nor end. Tis Jesus, the first and the last, whose spirit shall guide us safe home, 
We'll praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come.